mic on. Greetings, folks. This is Joseph again. This time for our session, we're going to be learning from... Patriarchs and Prophets. The title is... Mic off. Mic on. The Presumption of Saul. Mic off. Chapter 60, The Presumption of Saul. This chapter is based on 1 Samuel 13 and chapter 14. After the assembly at Gilgal, Saul disbanded the army that had, at his call, arisen to overthrow the Ammonites, reserving only 2,000 men to be stationed under his command at Michmash, and 1,000 to attend his son Jonathan at Gibeah. Here was a serious error. His army was filled with hope and courage by the recent victory, and had he proceeded at once against other enemies of Israel, a telling blow might have been struck for the liberties of the nation. Meanwhile, their warlike neighbors, the Philistines, were active. After the defeated Ebenezer, they had still retained possession of some hill fortresses in the land of Israel, and now they established themselves in the very heart of the country. In facilities, arms, and equipments, the Philistines had great advantage over Israel. During the long period of their oppressive rule, they had endeavored to strengthen their power by forbidding the Israelites to practice the trade of smiths, lest they should make weapons of war. After the conclusion of peace, the Hebrews had still resorted to the Philistine garrisons for such work as needed to be done. Controlled by love of ease and the abject spirit induced by long oppression, the men of Israel had, to a great extent, neglected to provide themselves with weapons of war. Bows and slings were used in warfare, and these the Israelites could obtain. But there were none among them except Saul and his son Jonathan who possessed a spear or a sword. It was not until the second year of Saul's reign that an attempt was made to subdue the Philistines. The first blow was struck by Jonathan, the king's son, who attacked and overcame their garrison at Geba. The Philistines, exasperated by this defeat, made ready for a speedy attack upon Israel. Saul now caused war to be proclaimed by the sound of the trumpet throughout the land, calling upon all the men of war, including the tribes across the Jordan, to assemble at Gilgal. This summons was obeyed. The Philistines had gathered an immense force at Michmash, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. When the tidings reached Saul and his army at Gilgal, the people were appalled at the thought of the mighty forces they would have to encounter in battle. They were not prepared to meet the enemy, and many were so terrified that they dared not come to the test of an encounter. Some crossed the Jordan, while others hid themselves in caves and pits and amid the rocks that abounded in that region. As the time for the encounter drew near, the number of desertions rapidly increased, and those who did not withdraw from the ranks were filled with foreboding and terror. When Saul was first anointed king of Israel, 
he had received from Samuel explicit directions concerning the course to be pursued at this time. Thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal, said the prophet, and behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days shalt thou tarry till I come to thee and show thee what thou shalt do. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8. Day after day Saul tarried, but without making decided efforts toward encouraging the people and inspiring confidence in God. Before the time appointed by the prophet had fully expired, he became impatient at the delay and allowed himself to be discouraged by the trying circumstances that surrounded him. Instead of faithfully seeking to prepare the people for the service that Samuel was coming to perform, he indulged in unbelief and foreboding. The work of seeking God by sacrifice was a most solemn and important work, and God required that His people should search their hearts and repent of their sins, that the offering might be made with acceptance before Him, and that His blessing might attend their efforts to conquer the enemy. But Saul had grown restless, and the people, instead of trusting in God for help, were looking to the king whom they had chosen to lead and direct them. Yet the Lord still cared for them, and did not give them up to the disasters that would have come upon them if the frail arm of flesh had become their only support. He brought them into close places that they might be convicted of the folly of depending on man, and that they might turn to him as their only help. The time for the proving of Saul had come. He was now to show whether or not he would depend on God and patiently wait according to his command, thus revealing himself as one whom God could trust in trying places as the ruler of his people, or whether he would be vacillating and unworthy of the sacred responsibility that had devolved upon him. Would the king whom Israel had chosen listen to the ruler of all kings? Would he turn the attention of his faint-hearted soldiers to the one in whom is everlasting strength and deliverance? With growing impatience, he awaited the arrival of Samuel and attributed the confusion and distress and desertion of his army to the absence of the prophet. The appointed time came, but the man of God did not immediately appear. God's providence had detained his servant. But Saul's restless, impulsive spirit would no longer be restrained. Feeling that something must be done to calm the fears of the people, he determined to summon an assembly for religious service and by sacrifice entreat the divine aid. God had directed that only those consecrated to the office should present sacrifices before him. But Saul commanded, Bring hither a burnt offering. And, equipped as he was with armor and weapons of war, he approached the altar and offered sacrifice before God. And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him, that he might salute him. Samuel saw at once that Saul had gone contrary to the express directions that had been given him. The Lord had spoken by his prophet that at this time he would reveal what Israel must do in this crisis. If Saul had fulfilled the conditions upon which divine help was promised, the Lord would have wrought a marvelous deliverance for Israel, with the few who were loyal to the king. But Saul was so well satisfied with himself and his work 
that he went out to meet the prophet as one who should be commended rather than disapproved. Samuel's countenance was full of anxiety and trouble. But to his inquiry, What hast thou done? Saul offered excuses for his presumptuous act. He said, I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. Therefore, said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people. And Samuel arose and gat him up from Gilgal unto Gibeah of Benjamin. Either Israel must cease to be the people of God, or the principle upon which the monarchy was founded must be maintained, and the nation must be governed by a divine power. If Israel would be holy the Lord's, if the will of the human and earthly were held in subjection to the will of God, he would continue to be the ruler of Israel. So long as the king and the people would conduct themselves as subordinate to God, so long he could be their defense. But in Israel no monarchy could prosper that did not in all things acknowledge the supreme authority of God. If Saul had shown a regard for the requirements of God in this time of trial, God could have worked his will through him. His failure now proved him unfit to be the vicegerent of God to his people. He would mislead Israel. His will, rather than the will of God, would be the controlling power. If Saul had been faithful, his kingdom would have been established forever. But since he had failed, the purpose of God must be accomplished by another. The government of Israel must be committed to one who would rule the people according to the will of heaven. We do not know what great interests may be at stake in the proving of God. There is no safety except in strict obedience to the word of God. All his promises are made upon condition of faith and obedience, and a failure to comply with his commands cuts off the fulfillment to us of the rich provisions of the Scriptures. We should not follow impulse, nor rely on the judgment of men. We should look to the revealed will of God and walk according to his definite commandment, no matter what circumstances may surround us. God will take care of the results. By faithfulness to his word, we may in time of trial prove before men and angels that the Lord can trust us in difficult places to carry out his will, honor his name, and bless his people. Saul was in disfavor with God and yet unwilling to humble his heart in penitence. What he lacked in real piety, he would try to make up by his zeal in the forms of religion. Saul was not ignorant of Israel's defeat when the ark of God was brought into the camp by Hophni and Phinehas. And yet, knowing all this, he determined to send for the sacred chest and its attendant priest. Could he by this means inspire confidence in the people, he hoped to reassemble his scattered army and give battle to the Philistines. He would now dispense with Samuel's presence and support 
and thus free himself from the prophet's unwelcome criticisms and reproofs. The Holy Spirit had been granted to Saul to enlighten his understanding and soften his heart. He had received faithful instruction and reproof from the prophet of God. And yet, how great was his perversity! The history of Israel's first king presents a sad example of the power of early wrong habits. In his youth Saul did not love and fear God, and that impetuous spirit, not early trained to submission, was ever ready to rebel against divine authority. Those who, in their youth, cherish a sacred regard for the will of God, and who faithfully perform the duties of their position, will be prepared for higher service in after life. But men cannot for years pervert the powers that God has given them, and then, when they choose to change, find these powers fresh and free for an entirely opposite course. Saul's efforts to arouse the people proved unavailing. Finding his force reduced to six hundred men, he left Gilgal and retired to the fortress at Geba, lately taken from the Philistines. This stronghold was on the south side of a deep, rugged valley, or gorge, a few miles north of the site of Jerusalem. On the north side of the same valley at Michmash, the Philistine force lay encamped while detachments of troops went out in different directions to ravage the country. God had permitted matters to be thus brought to a crisis that he might rebuke the perversity of Saul and teach his people a lesson of humility and faith. Because of Saul's sin in his presumptuous offering, the Lord would not give him the honor of vanquishing the Philistines. Jonathan, the king's son, a man who feared the Lord, was chosen as the instrument to deliver Israel. Moved by a divine impulse, he proposed to his armor-bearer that they should make a secret attack upon the enemy's camp. It may be, he urged, that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. The armor-bearer, who also was a man of faith and prayer, encouraged the design, and together they withdrew from the camp secretly, lest their purpose should be opposed. With earnest prayer to the guide of their fathers, they agreed upon a sign by which they might determine how to proceed. Then, passing down into the gorge, separating the two armies, they silently threaded their way under the shadow of the cliff, and partially concealed by the mounds and ridges of the valley. Approaching the Philistine fortress, they were revealed to the view of their enemies, who said tauntingly, Behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes where they had hid themselves. Then challenged them, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing, meaning that they would punish the two Israelites for their daring. This challenge was the token that Jonathan and his companion had agreed to accept as evidence that the Lord would prosper their undertaking. Passing now from the sight of the Philistines and choosing a secret and difficult path, the warriors made their way to the summit of a cliff that had been deemed inaccessible and was not very strongly guarded. Thus they penetrated the enemy's camp and slew the sentinels, who, overcome with surprise and fear, offered no resistance. Angels of heaven shielded Jonathan and his attendant. Angels fought by their side, and the Philistines fell before them. The earth trembled as though a great multitude with horsemen and chariots were approaching. Jonathan recognized the tokens of divine aid, and even the Philistines knew that God was working for the deliverance of Israel. Great fear seized upon the host, both in the field and in the garrison. 
In the confusion, mistaking their own soldiers for enemies, the Philistines began to slay one another. Soon the noise of the battle was heard in the camp of Israel. The king's sentinels reported that there was great confusion among the Philistines, and that their numbers were decreasing. Yet it was not known that any part of the Hebrew army had left the camp. Upon inquiry it was found that none were absent except Jonathan and his armor-bearer. But seeing that the Philistines were meeting with a repulse, Saul led his armies to join the assault. The Hebrews who had deserted to the enemy now turned against them. Great numbers also came out of their hiding places, and as the Philistines fled, discomfited, Saul's army committed terrible havoc upon the fugitives. Determined to make the most of his advantage, the king rashly forbade his soldiers to partake of food for the entire day, enforcing his command by the solemn imprecation, Cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening, that I may be avenged on mine enemies. The victory had already been gained without Saul's knowledge or cooperation, but he hoped to distinguish himself by the utter destruction of the vanquished army. The command to refrain from food was prompted by selfish ambition, and it showed the king to be indifferent to the needs of his people when these conflicted with his desire for self-exaltation. To confirm his prohibition by a solemn oath showed Saul to be both rash and profane. The very words of the curse give evidence that Saul's zeal was for himself and not for the honor of God. He declared his object to be not that the Lord may be avenged on his enemies, but that I may be avenged on mine enemies. The prohibition resulted in leading the people to transgress the command of God. They had been engaged in warfare all day and were faint for want of food. And as soon as the hours of restriction were over, they fell upon the spoil and devoured the flesh with the blood, thus violating the law that forbade the eating of blood. During the day's battle, Jonathan, who had not heard of the king's command, unwittingly offended by eating a little honey as he passed through a wood. Saul learned of this at evening. He had declared that the violation of his edict should be punished with death. And though Jonathan had not been guilty of a willful sin, though God had miraculously preserved his life and had wrought deliverance through him, the king declared that the sentence must be executed. To spare the life of his son would have been an acknowledgment on the part of Saul that he had sinned in making so rash a vow. This would have been humiliating to his pride. God do so and more also was his terrible sentence. Thou shalt surely die, Jonathan. Saul could not claim the honor of the victory, but he hoped to be honored for his zeal in maintaining the sacredness of his oath. Even at the sacrifice of his son, he would impress upon his subjects the fact that the royal authority must be maintained. At Gilgal, but a short time before, Saul had presumed to officiate as a priest, contrary to the command of God. When reproved by Samuel, he had stubbornly justified himself. Now, when his own command was disobeyed, though the command was unreasonable and had been violated through ignorance, the king and father sentenced his son to death. The people refused to allow the sentence to be executed. Braving the anger of the king, they declared, Shall Jonathan die, who hath wrought this great salvation in Israel? God forbid! As the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, 
for he hath wrought with God this day. The proud monarch dared not disregard this unanimous verdict, and the life of Jonathan was preserved. Saul could not but feel that his son was preferred before him, both by the people and by the Lord. Jonathan's deliverance was a severe reproof to the king's rashness. He felt a presentiment that his curses would return upon his own head. He did not longer continue the war with the Philistines, but returned to his home moody and dissatisfied. Those who are most ready to excuse or justify themselves in sin are often most severe in judging and condemning others. Many, like Saul, bring upon themselves the displeasure of God, and they reject counsel and despise reproof. Even when convinced that the Lord is not with them, they refuse to see in themselves the cause of their trouble. They cherish a proud, boastful spirit, while they indulge in cruel judgment or severe rebuke of others who are better than they. Well would it be for such self-constituted judges to ponder those words of Christ, With what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. Often those who are seeking to exalt themselves are brought into positions where their true character is revealed. So it was in the case of Saul. His own course convinced the people that kingly honor and authority were dearer to him than justice, mercy, or benevolence. Thus the people were led to see their error in rejecting the government that God had given them. They had exchanged the pious prophet whose prayers had brought down blessings, for a king who in his blind zeal had prayed for a curse upon them. Had not the men of Israel interposed to save the life of Jonathan, their deliverer would have perished by the king's decree. With what misgivings must that people afterward have followed Saul's guidance? How bitter the thought that he had been placed upon the throne by their own act. The Lord bears long with the waywardness of men, and to all he grants opportunity to see and forsake their sins. But while he may seem to prosper those who disregard his will and despise his warnings, he will, in his own time, surely make manifest their folly. Well, folks, this wraps up the episode. Till next time, bye for now.